like to ask you to take your Bibles with me today and turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus and the 24th chapter. Book of Exodus in chapter 24, if you were not here yesterday, you remember that during the opportunities that I have to preach during this conference, <clears throat> we are looking at the throne scenes of God in which the Lord reveals something concerning Himself. There was the one that we looked at yesterday in Revelation chapter 4, and then there are five Old Testament occasions when the Lord revealed Himself sitting on His throne, and there is instruction given to us related to that. So this morning we come to Exodus chapter 24. <clears throat> In just a moment I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 11, but we're going to focus our attention <clears throat> excuse me, this morning on verses 9, 10, and 11, or at least that's our text. And we'll be going elsewhere to develop this a little bit. But I want to entitle the message this morning, Living by God's Good Words. Living by God's Good Words. What we're going to note here is not God being presented as the Creator, as He was in Revelation chapter 4, but here God is presented as a God of words. A God of words. Let's pray this morning, commit our time to the Lord. And then we'll read this section of Scripture together. <clears throat> our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would quiet our hearts and still our minds. Remove from us the Lord Aries of life from this past week that may weigh heavy upon our heart this morning. Lord, remove from us even the anticipations of things later in the week concerns that we may have, and Lord, quiet us that we could focus our attention upon you this morning and your word. Give us, Lord, the liberty that we need to read your word, meditate on it, to contemplate it. We pray the Holy Spirit would be able to give us Enlighten hearts that we can understand it and make the applications to our own life. Bless our time now, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Exodus, <clears throat> excuse me, Exodus chapter 24. Let me begin reading with verse number 1. And he, God said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people, all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and built an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. 
And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand, also they saw God and did eat and drink. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua and Moses went up into the mount of God. And of course, notice verse 10 again. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. It's been over three months now since the Lord devastated Egypt with the ten plagues. And since Israel, under the leadership of Moses, crossed the Red Sea and escaped from the land of their captivity. During those months, Israel has made its way down the western side of the Sinai Peninsula. And now they find themselves camped at the base of Mount Sinai. You're aware that the nation is going to spend over a year here. And it's during that time that God will make a covenant with them. The tabernacle will be built, sacrifices will be instituted, and of course the Ten Commandments will be given. And although it will be a rugged time, it will also be a memorable one. And the blessed events of those days are forever recorded on the pages of Scripture. And this morning, we have read the account of one of those events. And in light of our series on the throne scenes of God, our concern is with what this passage teaches us about God. Remember from yesterday, Tozer? And the greatest thought that an individual can have are thoughts of God, mighty, noble thoughts of God. But what perfect and noble thoughts of God does this throne scene in verses 9 through 11 give to us? Well, folks, you catch a glimpse, an initial glimpse of the principle Israel is to learn in relationship to this throne scene by going back in this chapter a little bit and looking for some key little words that keep occurring. For instance, look back in verse 3. 
And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. Look at the end of the verse. And said, all the words which the Lord has said will we do. Verse 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Verse 7, and he took the book of the covenant. The end of the verse, all that the Lord hath said will we do. At the end of verse 8, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Verse number 12, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments that thou mayest teach them. It's obvious from perusing these words in this section that there's something going on in this event with regards to the words of God. And in essence, that something is this. God gives his words. The people commit themselves to doing them. And that although not stated directly, the truth that if they will obey those words, it will go well with them. They will enter a land flowing with milk and honey. But if they disobey those words, they will wander in the wilderness while all of those who rejected those words die off, or as the Bible says, as their carcasses fall in the wilderness. And they fell in the wilderness because of what they did with these words. Now, there are over 750,000 words in Scripture in the Bible. In fact, that is so many words they say. I'm taking someone else's word for this. But they say that if you could type 60 words a minute, it would still take you some 217 hours to type out the Bible. And for those of you that work 40 hours a week, imagine typing for five 40-hour weeks just to type out the Bible. That's a lot of words. But our understanding of Scripture is not only that all of those words are inspired by God, but also that we will be held accountable for what we have done with these words. Someday we must all stand before God and give account of the things done in our bodies, whether those things be good or bad, and it's the words in this book that determine whether those things are good or bad. The words in the book determine that. And so, folks, in actuality, the whole history of a man's life, the whole history of a man's life and whether that man will be blessed or cursed in his life is determined by what that man does with the words of God. And so this throne scene is here in Exodus 24 to encourage both Old Testament Israel and us to worship God not as the creator 
as in Revelation 4, but to worship God for his words. And it's here as well to exhort us that, folks, if we want it to go well in our lives, then we must do all that our God has said. And so, therefore, obviously, I've entitled the message this morning, Living by God's Good Words. Now, putting this event and scene in its historical context is going to help us better understand it. It was back in chapter 19, and you might just flip back. I turned back three pages. I don't know what it is in your Bible. But it was back in chapter 19 and verse 1 that Israel came to Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt. You can see that just as I talk by perusing that verse with your eyes. And of course, right away, God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai to initiate his intention and to indicate his intention to make a covenant with Israel. And you can read of that beginning in verse 3. And Moses went up into, excuse me, Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice, indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And you remember now that if you just your eyes continue to run down the passage, Moses then returns to the people, and in verse number 8, the people, the congregation, the nation indicate their willingness to enter into such a covenant, a covenant based on the words of God. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So God gives words to the people, yes, we'll obey them. Moses goes back to God and says, the people have said these words, and the people enter into a covenant. And so after then, of course, appropriate preparation, Moses returned in verse number 20 to Mount Sinai. And this time, God gave to Moses the initial words of the covenant as found in chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23. And of course, the most noteworthy portion of those chapters are the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. But chapter 19, verse 25, then says this. It says, So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. And after Moses received words from God, Moses went back to the people and spake those words to them, and that's now, I know you've got 20, 21, 22, and 23 there, but that's now where chapter 24 comes in. Because it's in chapter 24 that now they have a ceremony ratifying the covenant with God. 
God gives words to Moses. Moses goes down and the people say, we will do them. Moses goes back and tells the Lord, the people said they will do your words. So Moses goes back and gets the words from God. Chapter 20, 21, 22, 23. And then finally Moses goes back and with the 70 elders and Nadab and Abihu and the congregation, now they have a ceremony and they ratify the covenant. Here's the terms of the covenant. Yes, we'll do them. God, they'll do them. Okay, Moses, here's the covenant. Okay, now let's have the ceremony. Let's ratify this covenant. And that's where chapter 24 is. God has given his words, the words of that covenant, and now the people are going to enter into a covenant with God and ratify it. And that's what we read about in chapter 24. And this ratification, folks, I, I, I just read through it for us this morning, but that ratification has two primary parts to it. Number one, in verses one through four, there's the formal acceptance of the covenant by the people. And I'm not going to take the time to explain that and go through there, but the, that is all summarized. The ratification of this covenant by the people is summarized in verse number three. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. So there's the formal acceptance of that covenant but the second part of this ceremony is the ratifying of the covenant itself, the ceremony of ratification involving the offering of the burnt offering and the sacrifices before the Lord and the sprinkling, in verse number 8, the sprinkling of the blood of that covenant, so to speak, upon the people. I think that would have been significant. Those people coming by, that blood being sprinkled on them, the droplets of that blood remaining on their flesh for days and upon their garments. You know what it's like when blood stains clothing. That covenant and the ratification of it remaining on them for days, weeks, maybe months. They're carrying around within their own garments, on their own garments, that ratification. Dad, why are those droplets of blood there? Well, God gave us words. We committed ourselves to obeying them. There's this ratification. And then Moses comes back, reads the law again to these people, and then Moses and the leaders ascend up on Mount Sinai, representing the whole nation, and have a covenant meal with God. Verse number 11, And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hands. Also they saw God, and did eat and drink. So, folks, this whole event in chapter 24, this throne scene revolves around the words of God. God gave his words as the basis of a covenant with Israel. Israel ratifies that covenant, agreeing to keep those words. So, as I've said already, in Revelation 4, God is to be worshipped as the creator. But here, verses 9 through 11, when they see God, God is to be worshipped and honored as a God <clears throat> excuse me, a God of words. That's what this throne scene is designed to teach us, that God is a God of words. We are to keep those words if we want it to go well with us. 
If we don't want to keep them, we will die in the wilderness. Now, the one aspect of this whole event that we're concerned with, or at least initially, is this throne scene in verses 9 through 11, when Moses and the leaders are allowed to see God as part of the ceremonial meal ratifying these words. Now, we're going to come back. We're going to come back to the words of God in just a moment because that's what we're after this morning. We're going to come back to that, but for a moment, let's note the description of God given to us, particularly in verse number 10. Verse 9, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. Notice again in verse 11, also they saw God. Twice we are told that these men saw God. Now, clearly it doesn't mean that they saw God as God. 1 John 1.18 tells us that, quote, no man has seen God at any time. That includes these men. Exodus 33.20 states that no man can see God and live. 1 Timothy 1.17 states that God is actually invisible and can't be seen. So these men clearly did not see God as God in all of his glory or, in a, or his full deity, we could say. But they, folks, they did see some manifestation of God because twice it indicates that is the, that, that's the situation. And that manifestation was in some way, folks, very revealing and it was significant and they saw something about God because it states in verse 11 they not only saw God, but it says that God did not lay his hand upon them. No man can see God and live. So they did see something. They didn't see God in his full deity and all of his full glory, but they did see something. And it was only because God didn't lay his hand upon them that they didn't die on this occasion. So this is significant. And apparently in some veiled form, God partially revealed himself to these men. And of course, folks, that was somewhat essential in establishing this covenant with these men, wasn't it? Number one, so they would understand that God was a willing party to the covenant, and so they would remember that they had agreed in his presence to keep the covenant. This wasn't just a passing acknowledgement, but in God's presence. God was there. We saw God. We ate and drank with God. And all those years in the wilderness, they could remember that they said this in the presence of God himself. And God was there, and God actually entered into this covenant with them to keep his words. And of course, to impress them with this, they were given a glimpse of the scene around God and his throne. And the primary thing they saw, folks, if you'll note in verse 10, 
which is much, well, I shouldn't say it's much different than what we saw yesterday, but obviously yesterday in Revelation 4, there was a lot of description. Here, we're not given all of that description, but we are told the primary thing that kind of stood out to them was this paid work or this payment or this expanse that was under the throne of God. Now, do you remember from Revelation 4 and yesterday what that expanse, what that pavement looked like? Revelation 4 said that it was as like a sea of glass, like unto crystal. Now, that's not what we're told here. What we're told here is not any different than that, but we're just told a little bit more about it. Look what it says in verse number 10. And they saw the God of Israel... And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. That's one thing we're told. And that this, as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Here it is also said to be clear like Revelation recorded for us. But we're given a little bit more clarification of that. It is clear as the body of heaven in his, or the word is italicized, in clearness or in its clearness. In other words, as the body of the, the clear, the clear the, the, I don't want to use the word clarity, but the, the clearness of that expanse as, is as the body of heaven or as clear as the sky itself, or you could translate it like the very heaven for clearness. Now, keep that in mind. Add to that this. It was also said to be, actually, the quality of it was as a sapphire stone. A sapphire stone is generally an opaque stone that is sort of an azure blue in color, a color something like the sky. So the pavement on which God stood, this vast expanse under his feet, was in color as the essence of the sky that was up there that you can see. You might even be able to see it out the window. But as the essence of the sky, but in clearness. A bluish azure, or sorry, bluish azure blue, but clear as a sky, a brilliant sparkling blue that was unblemished and really with no defects. And of course, that would have been an incredible sight to these men. Here they are out in the desert, earth colors, brown, tan. Yeah, brown, tan, just earth colors. And all of a sudden, they see this there on the mount. And it would have really stood out to them. And God apparently, folks, on this occasion did not appear to them with thunder and lightning and smoke as he did back in chapter 19, an appearance that might appear to be threatening. Instead, he appeared here in this peaceful scene of beauty and brilliance in order to impress upon them God's desire to actually enter into a relationship with him. An intimate relationship based upon, of course, his words. And then these men ate and drank. Imagine this. I, I, I can't, I mean, I, I, yeah, I try to imagine, but it's hard to. They, folks, they ate and drank, it says in verse 11, before God. Just imagine that. What that entailed, I don't know. I know what eating and drinking is. But to actually sit there before God and eat and drink, this was, folks, 
a ratification of an intimate relationship with God. And these men are there. A relationship, folks, not built upon fear, but one of love and peace and mutual fellowship. Now, let me bring us back to the point of this scene. Again, as I said yesterday, <clears throat> we don't want to get lost in all of the all of the trappings, the backdrop, the flowers, the carpet. We don't want to get lost in all of that. It's here to heighten the impression that's made upon these men. But I want to bring us back to the point of this scene, folks, remembering God as a God of words. He's to be worshipped as a God of words, and that through his words, folks, we have life and a blessed, intimate relationship with him. Now, it is the fact, folks, that God is a God of words and speech that sets him apart from the gods of the religions of the world. Did you catch that? It is the fact that he is a God of words that sets him apart from the gods of the religions of the world. You Google this afternoon Hindu gods and look at the pictures that come up. Gods with six arms and two heads and the head of an elephant, the body of a fish. The gods of this world are designed to supposedly create a relationship based upon appearance, to impress people with appearance. And of course, God didn't want any graven images. There were times when God used appearance. There was the smoke and the fire. There was his glory that descended. There was his glory in the temple when they dedicated that Solomon. But by and large, folks, God's not a God of appearance. God is a God of words. This is so much the case that, for instance, in passages like Isaiah 41, 21 to 24, and Isaiah 44, 6 to 8, God actually calls upon the idols of the world and challenges them to speak a word. You go back and look at that. God challenges the gods of the religions of the world to speak a word. And if you can do that, we'll know you are true. But those gods are dumb. They cannot speak. And it's the fact that they cannot speak that God uses them to see. Say they See, they are false gods. They can't even give you words to live by. But the true God of heaven, the creator God, enters into a personal relationship with his people. And folks, he does so through words. I know immediately you're thinking into the New Testament and he enters into that through his son, but that's okay. He's the living word. But if you look in this passage, he's entering into a covenant relationship with these people based upon his words. And folks, he does that because it is through his words that these people have life. God's words are the very lifeblood of people. And if you've got Bible flowing through your veins, you're okay. But if there's no Bible in your words, your carcass will fall in the wilderness. And you will never enter the promised land 
flowing with milk and honey and 12 manner fruit alongside the river flowing from the throne of God. And even if you do happen to get there, but you as a believer have not lived by his words, there will be a judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, and there will be fire that will try every man's work as to what sort it was. God's words determine everything about a man's life. And so God has given his words here to these men and to these women. His words, folks, are their life. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you know about God's words? What, is, what did these people know about God's words? I mean, in Exodus 24, when God entered into the covenant with Israel based upon his words, what did Israel know about God's words? How could they, how could they stand there and say, okay, all the words of God we will do? Well, they did have the plagues behind them, and they had God's deliverance of the Red Sea, and some of that is brought out here. But what did they know about God's words? Why could they stay there, folks, stand there, folks, and base their entire life and the life of their children and their entire family? Why could they leave one country and go all the way to another country where they had never been? And you've never been to heaven either. Why could they leave one country? I know that they were slaves there, but constantly they would go back to that. At least we had some leeks and gar garlics and we had something to eat there. And at least we had homes and we were familiar with that territory. And the climate was acceptable to us. And they kept thinking, let's go back to what we're secure in and what we know. We're going to the unknown. Why could they leave everything behind? All of the world around them. Think of yourself now. And folks, what we are saying this morning in the book we believe in is not by the world's standards normal. But we are basing our whole existence upon this. Why could Israel stand there and say, okay, the words of God, we will do them. What did they know about the words of God? Well, folks, I want you to go with a passage that probably, listen, probably, and I, I want to say this because when I tell you the passage, you're going you're to dismiss this. That my tendency is to, folks, I want you to go to a passage that probably more than any other reveals the significance of God's words and why we can follow them without fear or anxiety. You know what that passage is? It's Genesis 1. Would you go there with me? Go with me to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. More than any other passage in the Bible, this passage highlights the preeminence of God's words and why it is that we can trust in them. Now, you're familiar with this chapter, but I want to ask you two introductory questions. Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought about why God put this chapter in the Bible? Someone says, well, obviously because, you know, this chapter begins where everything began. He began with the beginning of things, and so God is just 
obviously the Bible's got to begin somewhere and it begins with the beginning of things. But folks, let me also remind you that this chapter is the beginning of God's Word. It's not just telling us about the beginning of things. It is page one right there. It's the beginning of all those words. It's the beginning of God's Word. That's significant. And a second introductory question I would ask us is this, folks, is who was, the who was this chapter originally written to? Well, Moses wrote it along with the five books that form what we call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. But folks, most people agree that the Pentateuch was written for that first generation coming out of Egypt and for the subsequent generation since the first generation perished in the wilderness. Most people really feel that that's the case. So that includes, to some extent, if that be the case, folks, that includes, to some extent, these people who are right there in Exodus 24. I say to some extent because most of those people are going to die. But if that's the case, and I'm convinced that it is, if this book, including this chapter, was written for the generation of people that came out of Egypt and then for their children as well, I mean, here are these people, folks, and they're leaving one country and they're going to a promised land and they're doing it solely based upon the words and the promises of God. That's all they've got. They have nothing in their wallets. They have nothing in their wagons, so to speak. They have nothing tangible. They have no con. They have nothing except the bare words of God alone. And here's some of those words. So we have a chapter which begins God's words and brings them to man. And in particular, folks, what was initially written to this generation who escaped from Egypt and were making their way to that new land. So what does this chapter tell us about the words of God? Well, folks, it's in this chapter there are several patterns that occur, and those patterns are revelatory about, the, about God's word. In other words, these... This chapter is not just giving us information about how everything came into existence. But in doing that, these words are actually revelatory about God's words. And that occurs in three patterns, at least three. Let me show you the first of these. Look in verse 3, <clears throat> verse number 3. It says, and God said, and that's the first time in the Bible we come across the words of God. We're going to come across them now. We've never done that before. Here they are. And God said, now watch this, let there be light. And there was light. 
Did you catch that? God said something, and it happened. Look in verse number 6. And God said, let there be a firmament. At the end of verse 7, and it was so. Look in verse 9. And God said, let the waters be gathered together at the end of the verse, and it was so. Look in verse 11. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass at the end of the verse, and it was so. Verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament at the end of verse 15, and it was so. Verse number 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature, and it was so. Verse number 29, and God said, behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth. Verse 30, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I've given every green herb for meat, and it was so. Folks, here's a pattern. Here's a pattern about the words of God. God said it, and it happened. God speaks, and it is so. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between what God says and what happens in the world and in a person's life. God speaks, and it is so. In fact, one of the resources that I was looking at said, and again, I'm taking their word for it, but they indicated that there was a Jewish translation of this phrase that reads, and God said, and that's how it was. God spoke, and that's how it was. What God said, that's what happened. Let there be light, and it was so. Let there be grass, and that's how it was. Let there be seeds in the fruit, and that's how it was. Let there be a living creature and cattle and creeping things, and it was so. That's how it happened. That's what, what was so. It happened, folks, just as God said. Reality corresponds exactly to the words of God. Reality. Are you thinking about your life? The blessing, the cursing? Reality corresponds exactly to the words of God. So what are we to make of that with regards to God's word? Number one is that, folks, God's words are authoritative. In other words, they reign supreme. There are no dissenting voices. There's no alternate will. There's nothing to hinder the enactment of what God says. What God says happens. And it happens exactly as God said it would. Now think about that in relationship to Israel back there in Exodus chapter 24. Think about that relationship to God in our lives. The warnings that God gives to us. 
the promises that God gives to us. Listen to Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there's none else. I'm God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. My words will come to pass. They're going to stand. Everything I plan and purpose, it will happen just like I said it. I said it and it was so. And I told Samson, if you do that, that's going to happen. And I told Israel, if you do that, you're going to go to the nations. What God says happens. Folks, God's word, number one, is authoritative. And there's no dissension. There's no dissenting voices. There's no way to change that. When God says it, it is so. They are supreme. It means, number two, that God's words are trustworthy. Everything God says comes to pass. From the very beginning, God's words have been trustworthy. And so after bringing the people into the land, Joshua is coming to the end of his life. And the Bible says in Joshua 23.1 that Joshua was weak and stricken in years. But he calls the people together and exhorts them for one last time to remain faithful and true to God. And you know what he says? Here's what he says. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And ye you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that, catch this folks, that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord God spake concerning you. All that are all are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed. Do you remember him saying that? You've read that. Three times in that one verse, he tells the people, everything God said came to pass. Not one thing failed, and he's using that as a motivation to keep going with God in life. When God speaks to you, it happened. When God spoke to you, it happened. And when God speaks to you in the future, everything God says about your life will come to pass. So keep going with God. Every promise God gave to Israel came to pass. And folks, you know from your knowledge of the conquest of the land what that entailed. What did that entail? The sun had to stand still. Rivers had to part. Walls had to fall down. Remember the conquest and all the things that happened? Folks, imagine what God had to do to make sure his word came to pass. But it doesn't matter what it takes to bring God's word come to pass. Because when God says it, it is so. It will happen. And he will drive the Canaanites out with hornets if he's got to. Why, he'll make them hear things in the wind that aren't actually there. If he has to, he'll send one angel to kill 180,000. When God says something, folks, it is so. You can bank on it. God's word is trustworthy. His words reign supreme, and they're trustworthy. Ah, <laughs> but there's one more. There's one more thing in this chapter about the words of God. And if the first two don't stir your heart 
to really follow God, this one ought to. When what God says comes to pass, just like God said, folks, when God speaks and whatever he says happens, do you know what this chapter says about that? Look in verse 3. Genesis 1-3. You remember where we're at? When God speaks and it comes to pass, just like God said, do you know what that is? Look at this. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good. Look in verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind and God saw that it was good. Verse 18. Verse 17, he set the, these bodies in the heavens to rule over the day and over the night and divide the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. Verse 21. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters bring, brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every wing fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And then you know the whole chapter culminates in verse 31, And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And folks, the point is this, when God speaks and whatever God said would happen actually comes to pass, that's a good situation. From God's perspective, that is a good thing. Or I could put it this way, folks, from God's word comes goodness. From God's word comes goodness. When God speaks... And reality corresponds directly with what God has said. That is good. His words bring goodness. Now, unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. Because in Genesis 3, a second voice is introduced to us. The voice of the crafty serpent. And guess what he wants to talk to Eve about? The words of God. But not just the words of God. You know it well, folks. What he wants to talk to Eve about is the trustworthiness of those words and the goodness of those words. That's what he's after. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve listened to those lies and misconstrued representations of God's word. And for the first time in the history of the world, God's words were rejected as man chose his own goodness apart from God's words. You know anybody like that? For the first time in the history of man, people tried to find goodness apart from the words of God, and it entered into 
disaster, death and the curse. Because people would not follow the words of God. Do you know any people like that? Folks, the end result was not good. Rebelling against the trustworthy word of God brought cursing and death. And folks, all of this was written for those people in Exodus 24. So when they stood before God, and God said, I want to enter into a covenant with you, and here are my words, and he gave them to Moses, and the people came back and said, okay, we will do the words. Why could they say that? Because they knew God's words were authoritative. They would not have had this probably in written form, at least at the point Moses began to write this down. Maybe it only came to them verbally, but they had the authoritative, the trustworthy word of God, and they knew that through God's words came goodness. And they have personally experienced in that in their life as they came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. Stand still and see the salvation of God. And Moses raises his staff and the rivers part and the people go across at the word of God. And in the morning they look out. Ha! There's the Egyptians. Because Pharaoh would not listen to the word of God when Moses went in unto him. Who is God that I should obey him? All right? You will see God. And you will learn that the word of God rules and reigns supreme. These people had experienced all that. And they had Genesis 1 to confirm and to motivate them. So how is this, folks, to affect this ratification of God's covenant words? Well, we don't have time to trace this fully, but folks, there's an interesting thread, literally, there's an interesting thread that runs all the way through the history of Israel. Let me show you about four or five verses that indicate this and show you this thread. Go over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Here we are. We're in a situation. We're in Deuteronomy 5. These people are going to be given the law of God again. The Ten Commandments are going to be given to them again. The second giving of the law. And the people are being urged to live out that law in their lives. What urges them what does God lay out before them to urge them to keep the law? Verse 39, Deuteronomy 4, 39. Know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon earth beneath. There's none else. Thou shalt keep therefore his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee this day, that it may go well with thee. If you obey God's words, it will go well with you. Look in chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well 
with them. Verse 33. Ye shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that it may that ye may live, and that it may be well with you. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now these are the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. Verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee. Verse 18, And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee. So folks, I want to ask you, what do you think God intended for these people to learn from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3? Well, folks, it is the storyline of the whole Bible. The storyline of the whole Bible is simply this. God gives his word and he gives man the opportunities to obey and live by it. And if man does, the Bible records the good things that come to such a man. But if he is faithless and rejects God's word, then it does not go well with him. And the entire Bible carries that out. That's the storyline of the whole Bible. And tomorrow, excuse me, yes, Monday morning, we're going to look at another throne scene of God where God's got a man by the name of Micaiah, and he stands up and he says, you need to obey the word of God. And Ahab says no, so he disguises himself. And the arrow shoots out and it still gets him. Because he won't obey the words of God. I want to tell you something, you can't get around the words of God. If you obey the words of God, it will go well with you. But if you reject them and listen to the alternate voice, it will end in death and cursing. And here's what Israel had to learn. And you know, the folks, you know the history of Israel. The whole history of Israel bears out this one little point. And you know what? Even this day, while we stand here, the nation of Israel is in the condition it's in because it didn't obey the words of God. It has never recovered from those exiles. It's not the nation that it once was. Now, someday the king is going to come back, Psalm 2. But they rejected God's words, and they're still feeling the, they're still feeling the brunt of that. But back there in Exodus 24, although probably only passed down verbally, really, God intended those people. God wasn't just calling on them out of the blue, saying, hey, you ought to follow me. I got the better plan. It's going to work out better for you. You know, you ought to do what I want to do. God was calling on them by faith to obey his words. But you know faith well enough, folks. Faith always has an object. Faith isn't just stepping out in the dark. Those people had an object. They not only had the history of the miracles, but they had God's word, Genesis 1. And they had Genesis 3. And they learned of God's trustworthy, good words, but they also had that example of Adam and Eve. And they knew all about that, folks. They knew all of that. And they knew what happened through Adam and Eve and that sin had come into the world. They had some, their faith had an object. And so God there in Exodus 24 was calling on them to ratify his covenant and his words with them. And there was good reason for them to do that. Because it would go well with them. 
So, what does that mean for the children here today? And they're not here in the service this morning, but you might take this home as a parent. We've got a lady in our church doing that with her kids right now. Don't know much about discipline, trying to work. She reminds them of this, folks. What does this mean of children? For children, Exodus, excuse me, Ephesians 6, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor thy father and the mother that it may be well with thee. Honey, you need to obey mom and dad. You want it to go well in your life for you? Yes, mommy, I do. Then you need to obey the words of God. And if you do, you will live long on the earth. And it will go well with you. But if you disobey the words of God, honey, it's not going to go well with you. I know you don't understand that now. You're only four or five years old. You don't understand that. But you need to believe God's words. And if you do, if you will follow what God says, and God says you need to obey, Daddy and I, and if you will obey God's words, honey, it will go well with you. And folks, the parents here this morning can testify to that. No doubt in your immediate family, there are people who have obeyed God's words and there are some who haven't. Or the young people that you went to school with. Or Christian kids 10 years ago that came to the youth camp that you were at. And it's just a simple fact, folks. If we want it to go well with us, we will have to obey the words of God. What does that mean for the adults that are here this morning? I mean, what about the rest of us? Yes, God's word is authoritative and it's trustworthy but it, and it brings goodness. But folks, how does that actually work out in daily life? What does it mean that we not only live by bread only, but also by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? What does that mean? Well, folks, let me ask you, what does it mean when God says, be sure your sin will find you out? Now remember, God said, let there be light, and he was so. And God says, your sin will find you out. So what does that mean about the internet? What God says, folks, always happens. Reality corresponds to what God says. What about when God says, be anxious for nothing? But in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. How does that work out in life? God's word, all right, what is the so? You know what the so is? And the peace that passeth understanding will guard your hearts. Reality, folks, always corresponds to what we do with God's words. What about when God says, let your life be without covetousness? but we've got five credit cards and they're all maxed out. What about when God says, I will supply all your need? Folks, what about, what about this? What about the blessing of this? If you'll confess your sins, I'll forgive them. And we've got a pretty horrendous past and we've been beating ourselves black and blue for years and have not rested in the promise of God. God said, I'll forgive you. All right, rest in the so of that. It will be so. 
God, God's not deceiving you. It will happen. He did forgive if you'll confess. Or what about Christ and he says, I will come again for you. Or marry only in the Lord. Or flee youthful lusts. Or when sinners entice you, consent thou not. Or if you ask, you'll receive. Or my strength is sufficient. Or submit to one another. Or forgive and forbear and be patient. What, what's the so of all of those things? God said it, and what God says comes to pass. And folks, it's a good thing when it happens. How do the warnings and promises God give to us, how do those work out? What are they doing in your life this morning? What do those things mean for the Christian? Or folks, what does it mean when we kind of disregard those and we try to find our own goodness in our own words? That just won't work out. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just it will not work out. And folks, what do these things mean for the preachers who are here this morning when God says preach the word? Folks, the words of Scripture are life for people. Words by which come good things to people. Listen, if preaching is only imparting knowledge to people or if preaching is only a man giving a public meditation, but if preaching is the proclamation of God's life-giving words, then the stakes are raised considerably for the man of God. It is no longer a matter of preference whether we do or do not herald the exact words of God. It is literally a matter of life and death for people. And if God says in those things that I've referred to, if you, this is it, all right, now that, then I need as a preacher to herald the exact word of God, craft a sermon, not giving a public address. This isn't a lecture on spiritual truth. These are the words of God. And when a preacher stands in the pulpit, he needs to have studied the word and what he says doesn't need to just be true. It needs to be the word of God. It needs to be what God said. Those black things on that white page, that's what God said. And that's what needs to come forth. Because those folks are people's life. That's their lifeblood. And with those things, they can be free. And with them, they're bound. And the people before us don't just live by bread alone, but they live by every one of those black things on that page. And that's what they need. Folks, when God speaks, listen, this is amazing. When God speaks, it happens just as God said. That is so simple, but it is so profound. When God speaks, it happens just as God said. And folks, that's a good situation. It's always good. In fact, Genesis 1.31, it is very good when what God says comes to pass. It's a blessed thing. So this morning, in your imagination, would you climb up on Mount Sinai and view the throne of God? Would you see that throne, see the sapphire blue pavement, see the glory of God, and repeat again to God? Would you repeat this again to God? All your words I will do. And, O oh Lord, open the windows of heaven, and may it be well with me as I do your word. 
if you'll climb up on the mount this morning and say that to God, I want to tell you something. That'll be a good thing. And it will go well with you. So live life by God's good words. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come this morning, we thank you for the opportunity of looking into your word for a moment. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will actually see you and see your throne. What a blessed thing that will be. But Father, we're not there yet. And what you've given us to do is to live by your words now. And Father, we are, um, Lord, in our hearts this morning, we confess how often we have not done that. And we have disregarded your words for our own thinking and our own words. And Lord, it has not gone well with us. And Father, the tragedy in our life is that we just keep doing it. But Lord, use this scene that we've seen this morning and what you did in Genesis 1 to really stir us and that we will commit ourselves afresh and anew to living by your words. And Father, we take it by faith that when we do, it will go well with us. And that will be the best thing in our life that can happen. Strengthen us this morning, Lord. Give us grace to live, to live by your words. And we pray this this morning in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Pastor Davies.